You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, Field Church. How are we doing today? Wonderful. Well, my name's Mike. Uh, I'm a pastor in training here at the Field Church. I uh, also serve at an organization called the Nehemiah Project. Um, I get to serve the body of Christ as well as this local community. Uh, father to a beautiful little daughter, husband to a wonderful wife, and uh, certainly a sinner saved by grace. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Let's see what the Lord has in store for us. We're going to be looking at verses 41 through 44 today. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. <clears throat> it says this, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's safe to say that our text today reveals the beginning of a massive turning point in all of redemptive history. This is a unique moment in the history of God's people, Israel. The Messiah has come to Jerusalem during his final week of his earthly ministry. It's known as the Passion Week. And he's come to accomplish the mission that his father sent him to accomplish. The messianic hopes of deliverance from Roman oppression had reached fever pitch amongst the crowd. They must have said, finally, Messiah is here, the one who will crush the head of the serpent under his feet, the seed of Abraham through which all the families on earth will be blessed, the prophet of Moses, of whom Moses spoke, the one who would speak the very words of God, the star and scepter of Jacob, the lion of Judah, the royal son of David, who would establish the throne in Jerusalem forever. The one of whom it has been written will be the deliverer of all of Zion from all of our oppressors. He, he is here. Now, verse 11 in our chapter makes it explicitly clear that the Jews that were present that day thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I mean, they thought, this is it. Here he is, they must have thought. Here's the Messiah. He's riding into Jerusalem to receive his kingdom, to execute his reign and rule. He's going to destroy Rome, and he's going to establish Israel as the supernational or, or international superpower of the world, just like we thought he would. However, what the crowd failed to understand was that their greatest oppressor was not Rome. Their greatest oppressor was sin. The Lord God said to Cain at one point, sin is crouching at your door, 
and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said to his people in the 59th chapter, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you when you pray. Sin indeed is what created the Jews' most desperate need. It it wasn't the oppression of the other earthly kingdoms that have oppressed them throughout their history. It was the oppression from the kingdom of darkness that the Jews needed to be freed from. And here, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey is the only one who can indeed deliver the Jews from their spiritual oppression. But they are completely blind to this reality. Not only are they totally blind to this reality, but their commitment to the Messiah is superficial and fickle at best. And Jesus had already indicted the, the crowds earlier in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, when he said that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Indeed, it's only six days from the very event in our text where their shouts for Hosanna will turn into shouts of crucify him. They think Jesus is here to flatten Rome for Israel, but as we will see today, it's Israel whom Jesus says will be flattened by Rome. Why is the coming king turned into a condemning judge? Because the Jews had committed the idolatry of all idolatries. They had turned Messiah, they had turned God into something that he was not. The Jews had created a Messiah who was a political and military deliverer, who would smash Rome and crown Israel as the international superpower. And instead, what they got was a suffering servant who came to seek and to save the lost. Their messianic idol had caused them not to perceive the Messiah as he truly was. So the Messiah was revealed and the Messiah was rejected. The Jewish nation did not want to be under the reign and rule of this suffering and dying servant. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. And because of this, judgment was coming. Luke's main point in the section today is to highlight Israel's spiritual blindness. Like we just saying, I was blind and now I see Israel was indeed spiritually blind. And their spiritual blindness was because of their idolatry of heart and their unwillingness to repent. Which is why I've titled today's sermon, Spiritual Blindness Comes from Idolatry of Heart and Unwillingness to Repent. Now, how has Luke led us to this point during his gospel presentation? In our text today, we find Jesus again at the start of the Passion Week, the final week of his earthly ministry. But six months prior to this, in Luke 9, 51, Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had, he had made it up in his mind, now I'm going to Jerusalem. The time has come. And along the way, Jesus had concerned himself with healing all who came to him, teaching repentance of sins and preaching about the good news of the coming kingdom of God and performing many other miracles. Now, Luke has gone to great lengths to provide many details concerning these final months of his, his and our Savior's earthly ministry. And uh, many of you have been attending this church for the past five years, and you know that probably the past three of those five years, we've been in the book of Luke. So you guys are well informed about what uh, Luke has been able to show us about the final six months of Jesus' life. But just for a quick re- review, in case you weren't here last week, Luke has brought us to what is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, where Jesus to- decided to define his kingship by fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, which Tanner last week expounded for us wonderfully. 
As Jesus descends down the westward slope of the Mount of Olives, riding on that, donk, that colt of a donkey, the crowds who were following him begin to lay down their coats in an outward expression of allegiance as they erupt in praise, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has been surrounded by massive crowds most of his ministry, but the scene in our text today certainly reaches, it must be the apex of messianic fervor. Verse 37 in our chapter also reveals to us that this joyful praise was due to all of the miracles that the Jews had seen. Now, this, this detail is tremendously significant as we're going to come to see today. The Jews were fickle in their commitment to this, working, to this miracle working man who claimed to be the Messiah. Their show of allegiance was built on a misunderstanding of what the Messiah had come to do during his first advent. But their superficial belief did not fool Jesus here in our text today, nor did it ever fool him. In fact, the apostle John <clears throat> provides some insight into how Jesus thought about the fickle belief of the crowds in John chapter two, verses 23 through 25. It says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, it was the miracles, not the man, that were the primary driver for the Jews' allegiance to Jesus. Now, the irony here is that in the midst of all of this jubilant celebration over the Messiah by the crowd, the Messiah himself is weeping. You see, Luke has already made it clear in verse 30 of our chapter that Jesus is omniscient. He knows every single thing that there is to know. So Jesus certainly knows that the fickle, superficial, and idolatrous heart that makes up most of the crowd. And you'll remember throughout our study of the book of Luke, we've noticed that the crowd that has been following Christ has largely been made up of these superficial false believers who literally followed him only for the blessings that they were going to receive. There was very few in the crowd that actually believed that Jesus was who he says he was. Very few that actually believed he was the Messiah. I'm going to just read some passages from John chapter 7 so that you can hear some of the things that the crowds were saying about Christ during the Feast of Booths that is listed in John chapter 7. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And some of the people said, no, this really is the prophet about whom Moses spoke. And others said, no, this is the Christ. But others said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division amongst the people. Absolute chaos and confusion as far as who he was. They weren't settled in their mind. But verse 31 in John chapter 7 says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, well, when the Christ appears, is he going to do more miracles, more signs than this guy? So the miracles... The miracles were what brought these people along for the ride. And of those who actually thought that Jesus was the Messiah, very few had the correct view of Jesus' Messiahship, like we've already said. Most of, the, most of the Jews in the crowd were spiritually blind due to the fact that they had created an idol of Messiah in their hearts. In fact, Jews had always been prone to worship idols. Take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. 
going to go to verses 16 through 21. Now, the Lord had predicted this idolatrous tendency back in Deuteronomy 31, when he gave Moses this prophecy as they stood on the precipice of entering into the promised land. Read along with me as I read aloud. It says, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. This is God speaking to Moses. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. This song is referring to the song of Moses in the next chapter of Deuteronomy. And God says, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. Wow, what a text. An overview of the Old Testament reveals that what God prophesied about his chosen people would come to pass first culminating in the destruction of Israel's land and then culminating in the destruction of the first temple by the invading armies of the Assyrians and Babylonians. You see, God knew that his people would turn their backs on him even before he gave them the promised land. He gave them that song of Moses to stand as a witness against them so that they would remember the reason for their destruction because they turned to other gods, specifically the gods of the nations, and served them. You see, Jesus, as a Jew, knows his people's sad history. Jesus, as God, knows the fickle commitment of these superficial followers who are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus, as God, also understands that they really don't want a suffering Messiah who will die for their sins. What they want is a political military leader who will dominate their earthly oppressors. Like God in the Old Testament, who explicitly told the Jews that they would eventually face destruction because they would turn their backs on him, even while they stood on the precipice of entering the promised land, Jesus, in our text here today, reveals to the Israelites that they will eventually face destruction because they did not recognize the time of their visitation, even as they stand on the precipice of entering into the spiritual promised land through Christ's eventual death, burial, and resurrection. Church, This message could not be more relevant to where we find ourselves in this day and age, in this part of redemptive history, where Jesus has already accomplished his work on the cross, where Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the throne of the Almighty, where the way to God has been opened for all. Listen, if Israel, who was the chosen nation of God, had become spiritually blind from their idolatry, how much more us, the Gentiles, who have never received this special status from God like Israel did, and who have always lived in a society and culture that has been defined by idolatry? I mean, just think, 
Just think about the culture that you find yourself in today, that we find ourselves in today. This selfie generation that has essentially anything it could ever want from the click of a button. I mean, think about, just think about the barrage of advertising that we take in on a weekly basis, which is essentially telling you, you must buy this thing so that you may feel complete, so that you may feel happy. You need this. This will complete you. Think about the sentimental, consumeristic, spiritual pluralism that pervades our American society, which essentially claims that, hey, all people are essentially good and they might even have the spark of the divine within them. I mean, that truth is relative because all religions are, I mean, basically describing what different paths to the same God. This secular spirituality of today basically says this, as long as you feel good about God, and God definitely feels good about you. And that's all that you need. God is here to serve you. You're not here to serve God. And believe me, we can't forget about the aberrant forms of Christianity that are out there for you to choose from. Let me just take a second to think about how many different versions of Jesus there are out there for you to choose from. There's supposedly one who will rid your life of suffering. He'll make you rich and he'll make you healthy. There's another one who will provide the means for you to be saved only if you are good enough, if your works are satisfactory. There's another version of Jesus who requires you to pray to his mother if you want your prayers to be answered. This supposedly works because, you know, Jesus could never deny his mom. Or what about the version of Jesus who, he's just a simply, he's simply a good moral teacher that should just be emulated but not worshiped because he's just a good man who had the Christ spirit descend upon him. I could go on, but again, the point of our passage today could not be more relevant to us in this day and age. If we, like the Jews, continue to serve our idols of Christ rather than the true Christ, then we are in serious danger of becoming spiritually blind, and we will not recognize the true Christ when he comes on the day of visitation. And if we don't recognize the true Christ through a confession of faith, through repentance from our sin and turning to Christ, if we don't throw ourselves at the mercy of God Almighty, then we can expect exactly what the Jews received, judgment and destruction. With that being said, let's move into the division of our text today. <clears throat> we have three points today. <clears throat> number, one is the, number one is the lament over Jerusalem found in verses 41 through 42. We have three sub points. Point number two is the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. destruction. And point number three is the reason for Jerusalem's destruction. So now let's turn back to Luke 19 to begin the exposition of our section today. Number one, the lament over Jerusalem. Verse 41, it says this. And when he drew near and saw the city. We'll stop right there. Jesus has just come over the tiny hill that's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, which leads up to the bridge that crosses the Kidron Valley. So he has a, he has a totally level view of Jerusalem right here. We have to take a moment to understand the significance of Jerusalem, both in the mind of our Lord as a Jew and as God, if we are to completely grasp the force behind what precedes this section of the verse. Now, the word Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. The etymology of Jerusalem or the study of its origins, the word, reveals several other meanings of the word. We'll have some of them up here on the screen for you. 
Number one, it's the in awe of peace. It's teaching peace. It's possession of peace. It's reign of peace. And the Jews of the Old Testament referred to Jerusalem as many things. I'll read a few of them for you here. The city of God, the city of our great king, the lion of God, the city of the Lord, the throne of Yahweh, the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, Yahweh Shema, which means the Lord is there, and the holy mountain. And God himself in Psalm 2, verse 6, says that Jerusalem is his holy hill. And in Zechariah 8, verses 2 through 3, he says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In the mind of God and his people, Jerusalem was indeed holy ground. It is God's chosen center for his divine kingship, where he has chosen to establish his reign and rule through his vice regents, namely David and his sons. And the city has a very long and colored history. In the first five books of the Old Testament, Jerusalem is not directly mentioned. However, the hill in the land of Moriah, which is where God told Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, and Salam, which is where the priest king Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, 18, they both refer to the same site and they establish a link between the city of Jerusalem and the patriarch Abraham, to whom the land was given by the Lord. The city was later captured by the Jesuits in Joshua's day. And while the campaign by Joshua was fierce, to say the least, the Jesuits were not driven completely out of the area, which has, as you well know, proved to be very problematic for God's people throughout their history. And during the monarchical period, David eventually recaptures the city from the Jesuits, and he made Jerusalem Israel's capital city back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he made it the seat of not only his own monarchy, but of God's monarchy. And Jerusalem reached its political and economic zenith during the Solomonic reign. It was during this time that Jerusalem enjoyed peace with all of its enemies, and silver was so common that it wasn't even considered valuable. Look at 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27. It says that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. There's a lot of stones in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's demise began after this period of prosperity. As the kingdom was split in two and the people began to be led astray by wicked kings, false prophets, and their very own idolatrous hearts. During the prophetic period, Jerusalem's tremendous theological significance began to take center stage. The true prophets who had been sent by God began to warn the people of the Lord's impending judgment on their seemingly invincible city if they did not repent from worshiping their idols and turn back to the living God in faith. Despite years of numerous warnings from the prophets, the people of Israel not only didn't repent, but they even killed God's prophets because of their message of repentance and the impending judgment. And because of that, the word of the Lord's impending judgment came true and the first temple that was built by Solomon was destroyed by the invading Babylonian armies in 586 BC. The great irony concerning Jerusalem and its people is found literally all throughout the New Testament Gospels. On the one hand, Jerusalem is the city of the great king, but on the other hand, it's the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Now, getting back to our text, 
all of this information is certainly in the mind of Jesus as he draws near to the city. As a Jew, Jesus had spent many years worshiping Yahweh in the rebuilt second temple. Surely he had countless wonderful times of worship and fellowship with his countrymen while he was attending all of the required annual feasts in Jerusalem. And as God, Jesus has a jealous love for his holy hill where his throne resides forever based on the Davidic covenant. I think perhaps what is even more pertinent to our text today is that as Messiah, as the Christ, Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And right now in our text, as he's drawing near to the city of peace, he is literally surrounded by multitudes of lost Jews who, because of their spiritual blindness and idolatry of heart, will find themselves in hell forever, experiencing the wrath of the almighty God. We have to move on, but so much more could be said to the second verse of, or the second half of verse 41, rather, which is the compassionate response. Let's read together the entire verse. Verse 41 says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus sees Jerusalem with all of that information and more in his mind, and he weeps, he weeps. Now, the Greek word that's used here is the strongest Greek expression for weeping. It's kaleo. And it means to sob or to wail aloud, audibly, verbally. He's, he's crying out loud. And it can, be, it can be compared to a different but more common verb, which is dakro'o, which means to shed tears and to cry silently. But kaleo is the word used, and it's used in other places in Luke. In Luke 7, verses 31 through 32, Jesus himself says, so what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not kaleo. You did not weep. And in Luke 8, 52, it says this, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. When Jesus reaches this point in his journey, he literally bursts with a gut-wrenching emotion that's typically associated with mourning the loss of a loved one. Now, this compassionate response from Jesus ironically stands in complete juxtaposition to the crowd's jubilance. Now, despite the crowd's joy, Jesus is woefully, woefully weeping out loud because he rightly understands the sad state of his fellow Jews that they are completely blind to their spiritual status before the Christ. They are lost, and they don't even know it. In fact, they're rejoicing over Jesus, who is the one who is about to pronounce judgment on them. And this heart for the lost is burning, and it's breaking within the Messiah. What about you? Do you have the same heart for the lost that Jesus has? You find yourself filled with righteous indignation while at the same time, heartbroken sadness when you think about those who are lost right here in St. Tammany Parish. Don't be fooled because of the veneer of Christianity that exists here in St. Tammany Parish and even at, in the world at large. I mean, just because an organization claims to be a church does not mean that they are worshiping the biblical Jesus what did Jesus say about false believers and false teachers? You'll know them by their works. I mean, look, five days ago, 
Let's just look at what happened to a large megachurch. What just happened to Hillsong? Five days ago, it was revealed to the world that their founder, Brian Houston, not only built a global organization for his own personal economic gain, but that he also concealed copious, copious amounts of of evidence of sexual abuse and scandal within the so-called church, Hillsong. We have to pray for that gathering of people. We have to pray for their founder, that they would repent, that their eyes would be opened. It's not just because somebody claims or some organization claims to be following Christ does not mean that they're actually following the biblical Christ. I mean, look at the Jews. The Jews had a tremendous veneer of religiosity and they were completely lost because they were not worshiping the correct Messiah. I fear that. I fear that many people in St. Tammany Parish here are doing the exact same thing. I mean, St. Tammany Parish literally has the highest suicide rate in the entire state of Louisiana. You cannot seriously tell me or seriously think that St. Tammany Parish is just thriving spiritually when you hear statistics like that. We, church, we have to open our eyes. We have to understand the truth that the fields in which God has placed us in right here in St. Tammany Parish, are literally ripe with harvest. Stop worshiping your own idols of comfort, of status, of power, of control, of security, and start sharing the gospel with the people in your life. We all have to do that. I'm no different. We all have to do that. But I fear that most of us would rather just let someone else deal with it. I fear that we'd rather just not consider the reality of hell. Consider the reality that hell is full of people, full of people who thought that they were worshiping the biblical God. I fear that we're more like the Pharisees, that we desire the approval of people rather than the approval of the Almighty God. And we do this to our hurt and to the eternal demise of the lost. Getting back to our text, Jesus approaches the city and he begins to weep and to mourn the eventual eternal death of these fickle, superficial, and idolatrous Jews. Although he is holy God who does not compromise with sin, he is also the compassionate God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, he is the one who came to deliver his people from their sin. This forgiveness and this deliverance from their sin, which is their greatest oppressor, would be theirs if they only repented and believed, but they would not. Listen to the words of our Lord in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Literally, that last part in the Greek says, I willed, but you willed not. This tender-hearted outpouring of divine compassion by our Lord earlier foreshadows our text today, but more importantly, it reveals to us the hard-hearted condition of the Jews. They willed not to repent and believe. What Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 14, accurately describes the reason for their unwillingness. He says this, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said, engage in business until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want this man to reign over us. This is the heart cry of all unregenerate mankind concerning the lordship of Christ. And even though the Jews had been chosen by God, they're no different. They're no different. As far as they were concerned, they didn't need a spiritual redeemer. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple. <laughs> Let's turn to Isaiah chapter one to see how God felt about that hard attitude. Isaiah chapter one, verses 11 through 17. You see, the Jews thought that the sac their sacrifices were effective in the removal of their sins, but here's what God has to say about that. Verse 11, chapter one, Isaiah says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. And they have become a burden to me. I am weary of, burden, of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Despite all of the explicit denunciations of their hypocritical, cold-hearted worship, the Jews thought their sacrifices were enough. We're good. We're good, God, we got it. Thanks for giving us that system. We're gonna keep on sticking to it. What the Jews needed was not deliverance for, for the Jews. What they thought was they didn't need to be delivered from their sin. They thought they needed simply an earthly deliverer to crush the Roman oppression and to give them their freedom. They thought they just needed a Messiah who would fix their current situation, not their hearts. And by the way, this desire for a dominant earthly ruler was nothing new for the nation of Israel. Back in chapter one of Sam, uh, or sorry, back in First Samuel chapter eight, verses five through nine, once uh, the judge Samuel was nearing the end of his life and his time as judge, the people plainly stated this. They said, "Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king. We want something we can see. We want military strength. We want economic superiority. We want to be like the nations of the world." Listen to the rest of the passage. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God gave them what they wanted. 
The heart of Israel never did get any better. It got worse over time. And as we read earlier, God predicted all of this about Israel way back in Deuteronomy 31. God wasn't taken by surprise by anything Israel ever did. In fact, he ordained all of it and he actually used it to open up the way of salvation to the Gentiles. Only those from Israel who repented from their idolatry and placed their faith in the true God would be saved. You guys remember the words from Genesis chapter 15, verse six, said, and Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But sadly, for most of Israel, their idolatry of Messiah and their unwillingness to repent, despite Jesus' explicit claims of being the Messiah who came to seek and save the lost, led them to complete spiritual blindness and eventually to destruction. Now let's move on to the third subpoint under the, under the lament. It's called the judgment. It's found in verse 42. Follow along with me in your Bible. It says this, would that you, even you had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What irony, what irony. Our Lord cries to the city of peace. Would that you had known this day the things that make for peace. What are these things that make for peace? And more importantly, who needs to be reconciled here? What two parties need peace between them? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48. Turn there in your Bibles. We're getting our biblical workout this morning. We're trying to slowly wean off the, uh, the slides up there, just so you all know. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 48 gives us a summary statement of the primary issue that we're dealing with here in our text, okay? Namely, that the Jews' heart was far from God. They were nominal Jews. They were not true Jews. And we understand this today, right? I mean, people who call themselves Christians, but whose lives do not reflect the life of Christ. They're Christians in name only. So Isaiah 48 helps us out here in understanding this, but it was written against the backdrop of the coming Babylonian invasion and the subsequent destruction of the first temple. Now, I would encourage you guys to read the entire chapter, but just for the sake of focusing on the question, what are the things that make for peace? Please look at verses 17 through 19 with me. It says this, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Did you catch that in verse 18? Peace like a river flows from obedience to the Lord's commands. Just to reiterate this point again in Psalm 81 verses 6 through 18, it says this, hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I would fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him and their fate would last forever. 
but I would feed Israel with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you, Israel. Gosh, what the, we just hear the heart of the Lord in that portion. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Ezekiel 18 verses 30 through 32 adds repentance to the things that makes for peace. It says this, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to your ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all, their, all the transgressions you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. God tells us in this passage that we must make ourselves a new heart and a new spirit so that we can turn and live. But how is this possible? How can one receive a new heart that is clean from sin? How can one be given a new spirit that is fashioned after God's spirit? The only way is through Christ, through faith in Christ, whom Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, says in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, who will guide our feet into the way of peace. Christ will guide our feet into the way of peace if we would only repent and believe. Faith in Jesus as Messiah is ultimately what these Jews needed to have because Christ himself is the object that makes for peace between God and sinners. By his substitutionary atonement, he satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the penalty for sin that all of their animal sacrifices were pointing towards. It's by his sinless life. He lived the only life that is acceptable by God's holy standard. But as we've already stated, the Jews were not willing to repent of their idolatries and come to true, authentic faith in Christ. And Jesus told them in Luke 4, verse 32, that he had not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. So these Jews didn't believe that they had a need for a spiritual deliverer. I mean, they had the sacrificial system, like I've already said. They had the temple. They had the Old Testament promises. They were the children of Abraham. Uh, I wonder if they remember John the Baptist's words in Luke chapter 3, verse 8 through 9, when he said to the crowds, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what happened here? What's going on with this passage of Scripture? What's going on with the Jews? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of clarity in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. It says this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But, if, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Jews stumbled over the stumbling block. They thought that they could achieve God's righteousness on their own. And because of this, Jesus says, getting back to our text, 
that the things that make for peace will be hidden from their eyes. What does Jesus mean when he says they will be hidden from their eyes? I mean, he, he didn't just disappear after he said that. He's still there. Well, the word that Jesus used here is trans, that's translated hidden is the Greek word crypto. And it means to conceal by covering, to hide oneself and to keep secret. So what is Jesus going to hide? Well, according to our text, he said he's going to hide the things that make for peace. And we've already defined all those things, but, but why hide them? Like what's going on here in the background? For clarification, let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, starting at verse 32. I'm going to read all the way through verse 50. I want you all to follow me, follow along rather as I read. But as you're turning there, I'll, I'll tell you this. The, true, the two primary reasons for this concealing are number one, the judicial hardening of Israel by God. God hardened their heart. And at the very same time, Israel hardened their own heart by choosing not to repent. We've got the sovereign will of God and mankind's responsibility paralleled in this text. So John chapter 12 really does shed some light for us on the large-scale catastrophic unbelief of the nation of Israel which led to this concealing of the things that make for peace by the Lord. Let's read. Starting in John chapter 12, verse 32, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him and said, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light which, by the way, was a messianic title, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the, in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, saying, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever has seen me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Wow. 
It's a good portion of scripture. See, Christ made the reasons for the Jews' rejection of, of him explicitly clear. The scripture foresaw and necessitated, be, necessitated it because it was a part of God's divine plan. However, this by no way resolves the Jews or any person of their responsibility personally to repent. Jesus said in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, unless you, were, you repent, you will all likewise perish. Ultimately, the Jews did not repent of their sin. They continued to worship their idols. And because of this, the Lord pronounced his judgment that the things that make for peace would be hidden from their eyes. So much more could be said about this, but we have to move on to the second major point in our section today, which I have titled the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. It's found in verses 43 and 44a of our section. Let's turn back and read together. It says this, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Now, what Jesus is prophesying here is the destruction of Jerusalem by their primary enemy of the time, Rome. The phrase, for the days will come upon you, is a standard Old Testament phrase used by the prophets to describe future events that were yet to unfold. So here, we see yet another aspect of Jesus' messiahship that he's exemplifying, namely his role as prophet. And he's shown himself to be king, to be prophet, and in the text that follows ours today, he will show himself to be priest, thus exemplifying all three major messianic roles, prophet, priest, and king. Again, the irony could not be more pronounced as the Jews were, were giving praise and honor to the one whom they thought was going to flatten Rome for them. They got, and hope, they got that their hopeful deliverer who turned on them and actually describes to them in the midst of their fickle praise that Rome will flatten them. This, now, this prophecy actually did unfold precisely the way that Jesus described it. And it was ultimately executed by the Romans during the Jewish wars that lasted from 64 to 70 AD. We're going to do a little history lesson here, so make sure you write notes down if you're interested in it. The Romans, led by Roman Emperor Titus, the son of Vespasian, conquered Jerusalem in the exact method that Jesus said. Their siege began on April 14th of 70 AD, three days before the Passover. The Romans allowed the pilgrims to enter into the city for the Passover festival, but did not allow them to leave. Titus, the Roman emperor, began his siege by setting up the Roman base camp of operations three quarters of a mile away from the entrance to Jerusalem on the exact road that Jesus is on in our text today, the one that comes down the westward side of the Mount of Olives. Then Titus ordered his soldiers to begin leveling the ground between their base camp of operations and the outer wall of the city. They literally flattened everything. They got rid of the fruit trees. They got rid of the orchards. They got rid of the little walls that were built. I mean, they flattened it. And once the ground was level, Titus ordered the construction of the barricade that Jesus mentioned. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, that barricade was roughly five miles in circumference. And it was completed over three days. I mean, they threw that thing up. 
And they threw it up systematically as they just cut off portions of Jerusalem. They went in the outer wall, cut it off, start to build that barricade. And they just did this systematically as they just slaughtered everyone that was within the city walls. This barricade made it impossible, impossible for anything to get in or out of the city without the Roman military's notice. Food, water, other resources were all cut off from the city, leaving the already factious Jews meager hope within the city of peace. And I say factious on purpose. I have to tell you that the Jews were far from being united during this time period, far from it. There were so many so-called messiahs exalting themselves and trying to fight off Rome in order to usurp power. It's not even funny. This, all of this led to violent infighting between the Jewish people inside of Jerusalem. With chaos outside of Jerusalem and chaos within Jerusalem, the hunger pains began to set in. And Josephus, again, describes the miserable condition of the inhabitants. The, the Jews locked within the city literally would eat the leather off of their shields just to fill their bellies. Any food or water that did manage to get smuggled in would immediately just be fought over to the point of death by the hunger-crazed thugs roaming the street. Josephus even tells the story of a wealthy woman who is named Mary, the daughter of Eleazar, who went as far as cannibalizing her very own children. Complete and utter destruction. As the Romans began to move in towards the Holy Temple, they thoroughly burned everyone and everything in their wake, sacrificing to their Roman gods along the way, culminating in the eventual flattening of the entire city. The only structures to remain were the three most prominent towers that were there and the Western Wall, which is still there today, all of which were kept by Rome as trophies due to the magnificence of their construction. I mean, they were absolutely magnificent things that were, that were, that were made. And the only reason Rome kept them was to make their grandeur even more glorious in the eyes of their would-be enemies. The siege of Jerusalem ended in August 70 AD when the temple was finally burned to the ground. Thus, every single word prophesied by Christ in our text today came to be fulfilled. Complete and total annihilation for Jerusalem. Remember, this occurred because of the nation of Israel's idolatry and resultant spiritual blindness. It's not that they were ignorant of the truth. They just simply rejected the truth. The execution of Christ's prophecy which occurred 40 years after he spoke it, was surely reminiscent in the mind of those Jews who had witnessed the triumphal entry and were still alive during the Roman siege of Jerusalem. And they would have these words as a witness against them, just like the Song of Moses stood as a witness against the apostate nation of Israel. Maybe this would have brought those Jews under conviction and eventually to repentance and faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but we don't know. So I turn the focus to you. When the word of God proves true in your life, what is your response? When the effects of sin show their ugly face, do you, just, do you respond in repentance or faith or do you just continue on in the hardness of your heart like many of those Jews did? The Jewish nation at large to this day does not recognize Jesus as their Messiah despite the truth of his words concerning the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. So will you just continue worshiping your idols when faced with the truth of God's word or will you repent and believe in Christ? If you are choosing to continue worshiping your idols, then please listen very carefully 
to this next point, which is number three, the reason for Jerusalem's destruction. The second half of verse 44 says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now we've already discussed the two reasons for the apostasy of the nation of Israel, God's sovereign plan and the people's rejection of their Messiah. That second point has been the focus of our text today. Jesus had come to his own people, but his own people willfully and freely rejected him. Yes, this was according to the eternal plan of God, but it was also done freely by each individual Jew who decided in their own mind that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, despite of all the evidence. I want you to understand that Luke has shown us this in his gospel account. He has shown us this fate for the Jews. Turn to Luke chapter two quickly. Luke chapter two. We're going to read verses 25 through 35. Here we see a man named Simeon who is mentioned nowhere else in scripture, but Luke undoubtedly received this fact from the mother of Jesus, whom Luke interviewed when creating his gospel account. Starting in verse 25 of Luke chapter two, follow along as I read. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This man, Simeon, rightly prophesied that Jesus is the Messiah and has been appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Said differently, Jesus is going to be the one whom the Jews reject in order to show that they never loved God in the first place. And that is true of all mankind. That is true of all of us. Like I said earlier, if it's true of the Jews who were the chosen people of God, how much more so the Gentiles who never were the chosen people of God. So despite all the evidence for Jesus as Messiah, the Jews largely rejected him. Their hard hardness their worship of idols and their unwillingness to repent because of their presumption that being a child of Abraham was enough for them to receive salvation all culminated in their spiritual blindness and eventual apostasy. Apostasy is a word you may have heard before, but what it is, it's, it's a falling away. That's what the word literally means, a falling away from the living God due to a rejection of him despite having full knowledge of who he is, full knowledge. Listen to the words of Hebrew chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. They give us a pretty good definition. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a 
fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think you, that will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The context of this passage that I've just read clearly defines the term sinning deliberately, quote unquote, as rejecting the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin, i.e. rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and trying to turn to some other source for your redemption. If you with full knowledge reject Jesus Christ as Lord, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? The Jews did not accept Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins and they still continue to this day with their rejection. Despite the three years of wondrous miracles and explicit explicit messianic references. The Jews rejected Jesus with a full knowledge of who he was. They weren't ignorant. They were well-informed. So what about you? How long have you heard the message of the gospel? How often have you been exposed to the message of the truth? Has the message of the gospel penetrated your heart? Do you believe that Jesus is, the, is who he says he is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God who defeated death by becoming the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin and for my sin, who died a sinner's death and, and then was raised three days later by the power of God from the dead? If the answer to that question is no, then you can expect exactly what the Jews received for their rejection of the Messiah on their day of visitation. God had visited his people through the word become flesh. His people rejected the word with a full knowledge. Where else is there to go? I plead with you today. I plead with you. If you have been sitting in this church for any amount of time and you still have not believed in Jesus as the Christ, put aside your idols today. Today. Put aside your pride and bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Repent and turn from all of your transgression lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all of your transgression and come to the throne of mercy and of grace. Do not, do not allow your hard heart and the worship of your idols keep you spiritually blind. Recognize the Christ on the day of your visitation. Why will you die? The throne is now open. Repent and come to Christ today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are a holy God. We thank you, Lord, that you are a compassionate God who is slow to anger, who, who is abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God, we are all condemned under sin. The whole world is condemned under sin. And if it was not for your gracious provision of the Christ, we would all perish. God, I pray, Lord, for those who in this room today do not know you. Holy Spirit, please soften their hearts. Spirit of God, please convict their hearts. 
They have heard the explicit gospel today. There is no more information to go learn about. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to repentance and faith. And for those who do believe in you now, God, give us the power to endure unto the end. Give us the power to never fall away from you and reject you. God, I pray, Lord, for the endurance so that we might be saved and inherit the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.